Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! Right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking mannequin busts. We're talking grown-worthy Dr. Sartain. And we're talking Judy fucking Greer. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking a Bon Me sandwich. Oh my god. There's like two <laughs> points of contention in this film. One is one that I said, and one is one that you've said. Oh, uh, but there's another one too, and it's little baby Julian, but we'll get to him. Oh, people don't like... Okay, sorry, no, no, we'll get no, I, I know, I know. Well, t- trust me, I, I've got things to defend and I've got things to critique. But y'all, we are discussing <laughs> David Gordon Green's Halloween 2018 slash Halloween 2 slash Halloween H40 40 years later. Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, we're talking about the Halloween franchise, so it's like, which of the many split timelines are we talking about? And in this case, uh, yeah, it's almost a least complicated one, right? It is. Although, you know, once Halloween Kills comes out this weekend, by the way, and of course, Ooh. Halloween Ends hopefully comes out next next October if they start filming it in January as planned. I don't know. Fingers um, crossed. Yep. yep. But yeah, I mean, ho- hopefully it keeps it as simple and pretty as the original film is. Um, there we go. Because yeah. <laughs> that actually is a critique I have about this film is that it's not... There's too much. There's too much happening in this movie. <laughs> it is a lot, indeed. Yeah. But, but Joe, you know, we each have our own thoughts about this movie, this franchise, and I do think that we need probably someone else to come and, and help us through this this walkthrough of this film that, I mean, made a ton of, ton of money. Let's, let's not mince words here. It, it's a mm-hmm. blockbuster for horror. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, everyone. Well, he is a contributor for The Hollywood Reporter and has been featured in such publications as The New York Times, Fangoria, and Inverse. He is also the author of the book We Make Monsters Here, which is a collection of short horror stories. Please welcome Richard Newby. Hey, guys. How's it going? All right. I'm wearing a Michael Myers mask. No, that's dumb. I'm sorry. No, ignore that. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wearing a Laurie Strode mask. A wig. A Laurie Strode wig. Oh, boy. Yeah, there are some wig choices in this movie as well. (laughs) Welcome, Richard. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you guys for having me. Happy to have you. And love to know. So what made you want to come on and discuss this film? Uh, I love the the Halloween franchise. I've been a fan of it for a long while. I'll admit... um, it was Rob Zombie's uh, Halloween movie that really increased uh, oh, my interest in the uh, in the franchise. I actually, I mean, I, I've always been a lover of horror, mm-hmm. but growing up, I was more so into you know the the monster movies, the Universal stuff. Yes, right. yes, yes, yes. Alien, the Blob remake from the eighties. So oh, I no. actually didn't grow up uh, watching a lot of slasher movies until I was in high school. And so high school was about the time when Rob Zombie's Halloween came out, uh, and I thought that it looked amazing. So then I, I had watched uh, John Carpenter's, which was uh, on AMC one night. Oh, they all were. <laughs> all of them were on AMC. 
Yeah, and I just I I fell in love with it. I just thought it was such an interesting, I think, exploration of of evil. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. Lori is my favorite uh, final girl. So yeah, I've you know watched every entry in the franchise uh, multiple times. So I could not have been uh, more hyped when I found out that David Gordon Green was tackling this uh, this new iteration. Yeah, that that's something too that I think. I mean, even his mere involvement is a point of contention within some fans. And I, I'm not gonna lie, it makes me a little angry when I'm like, people are like, "Oh, he's a comedy guy. Like, don't do this." And I'm like, "No, no, 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 don't do that." Well, it's just another form of gatekeeping, right? Like, oh, we need to keep every genre siloed. So if you've ever worked in one, you can't possibly work in another. And I feel like we. I mean, whether you like this movie, whether you hate this movie, whether you're ambivalent, it's not up for us to decide who gets to work on what kinds of projects. Like, we can critique how it turns out and maybe talk about people that we would have liked to have seen handle things. But we also don't get to say, oh, certain person never gets to work on a horror film. Like, that's shit. But there is, you're 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 absolutely right, and I, I do think the issue is here. Like, if it was just any like random or maybe an original horror film, I don't think people would bat an eye. But because mm. it's oh, it's you're resurrecting a dead franchise after X amount of years. But here's the thing, and you know we can quibble about with this film, whatever. But like Danny McBride and David Gordon Green are passionate about this franchise. They that is true. Jason yeah. Blum didn't just walk up to them and say, "Oh, you guys, y'all want to do a horror movie? Cool. Here's Halloween." Like, right? They grew up. With with this movie just like many other people did and they are passionate they know michael myers and i would argue that the production of this like took fans needs and desires into account and i would argue that that is a blessing and a curse to this film but i don't for once think oh they are the wrong people to work on this movie right yeah (sighs) i don't i'd also add that um you know i'm a fan of uh what they did on television as well um with uh, Eastbound and Down in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there are some real interesting moments of unexpected horror in that show. So, you know, to me, like, it wasn't entirely, like, you know, out of the blue that they decided to do this. Right. And I've listened to, to Danny McBride on, on several podcasts over the years, and he's a big horror fan as well. Mm-hmm. And just, like, looking back over some of uh, David Gordon Green's filmography, I mean... A lot of it does deal with rural, uh, small town areas and kind of the certain issues that, you know, haunt their their families and things like that. So I do think right. that there is, you know, a, a reason why they were chosen to uh, to take over the franchise. Well, and we discuss many, many times in this podcast, like how closely related comedy and horror are to each other. So, oh, yeah, honestly, if, if there is a filmmaker who is known for making one particular type of film and is going into horror honestly comedy is the best one in my opinion yeah it's a very natural segue or like moving out of horror and moving into comedy that's the other direction we've seen but the two genres are very linked and i think in terms of I mean, I can certainly understand if people don't like this movie, they might point the finger at these two because they wrote and directed it. And it's really about, you know, the new creative vision. But I also think that as beloved as this franchise is, there's a lot of people who feel like it has lost its way over various iterations, right? Like when you hear people defend the franchise, they are either like big 
Jamie fans and they Mm -hmm. will advocate for like that middle stretch or they will say like, oh, resurrection was terrible. It almost killed everything. So in a certain way, I feel like you had to take a risk and hire some unorthodox choices because like Blumhouse didn't want to risk fucking this up. They wanted someone who was going to bring the passion and the energy, but also like somebody who was going to do something a little bit new slash old. Well, and it's both. <laughs> it's both, yeah. Well, and, and Richard, I'm fascinated too that you're, what spurred your interest in this franchise was the zombie films. And th- those are two films um, I really don't like his first movie because I do think it's a compromised vision. I also don't love his backstory for Michael. Like, I, I know people gripe about his, you know, dialogue and how it's, oh, a bunch of hillbilly trash, whatever. Like, it's fine. I just don't like it that much. Although I will say I do, after... 12 years distance and watching the director's cut, I do really enjoy his Halloween too. I think it's a flawed film, but I think it's an interesting film that tackles Final Girl PTSD mm-hmm. in a very interesting way that I think this film thinks it's trying to do. And again, we'll we'll discuss that as we kind of get further into the plot, but I'll, I'll add that I think that Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, that's my favorite after... John Carpenter's original. Oh, wow. Okay. And before this one, before uh, this one came out in 2018, I actually wrote about how zombie handles trauma in a really interesting way uh, in that film. So, yeah, I I 100% agree with what you're saying there. And listeners, if you're like, no, that movie still sucks. Laurie Strode's annoying as fuck. I will, I will really implore you. That director's cut is a completely different film than what the theatrical cut is. And... I think in the theatrical cut, it doesn't do it. It kind of does something similar to this film, where it doesn't have as much focus on Lori and her trauma, and so she comes across as whiny and annoying. Whereas in the director's cut, it does devote more time and scenes to her, so it becomes understandable. But I'm sorry, we're not talking about Rob Zombie's Halloween. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, but and, and therein lies part of the problem, right? Like these movies are so steeped in each other's DNA, and particularly as we get into the meat of this 2018 remake slash sequel like there's there's so many pieces where you have to almost stop and say okay well this is what it's doing and it's a callback to a film that the it said it wasn't going to address and it's not part of this lineage anymore and yet we're still acknowledging it because we want to pay attention to the legacy like this is such a weird fucking franchise (laughs) It it is, but I I like this choose-your-own-adventure aspect of it. I like that you can be like, well, I like this timeline, so that's my Halloween franchise. Like, I own every fucking film in this this set, but if if I'm pulling movies out to watch, I'm watching 1, 2, and H2O. Now, granted... I'm of the mindset that I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing kills and ends because I do think mm-hmm. that it's going to address a lot of the issues that I have with this 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 2018 film. Yeah. And I'm wondering if those films will somehow retroactively make me like this first film more. Like, that's what my, that, that's my yeah. hope going into both of these movies. Yeah, I'm really hoping that they were conceived as a proper franchise and we're going to be able to see them almost as a whole. But part of me also needs these films to stand on their own. And I think this version mostly does that. I have concerns or worries about what we're going to get in Kills. So I'm intrigued. I mean, folks, you can listen to us talk about it at length next week when we have a Patreon episode of it. But also, I am interested in the comparisons that people have made specifically around Laurie's PTSD and trauma, and when people focus on how her character has changed or how they've shifted that narrative between this and H2O. And of course, we also have a Patreon episode on that. 
So <laughs> go do everything. Do all the things. But, um, Joe, so we've got Richard. You know why he's connected to this. What is your connection with this franchise? So I'll admit that this is probably my least favorite of the big franchises. And I think part of that is that I did come to it rather late. But also, I just don't find Michael Myers as compelling a villain. Like, Friday the 13th is a mess, but it's such a hot mess. There's something <laughs> satisfying about seeing each of those different films try to take a different stab at it. Halloween feels like a very compromised vision like everybody tries something that is respectful but i don't feel like they always have something new to say i think it really gets lost up its own butt when we get into the jamie stuff because that's when slashers aren't doing as well and they didn't really know what to do with it mm-hmm. so i'm kind of like you i like the first film a lot but not as much as most people so like if people say oh it's a classic i'm like well have you seen black christmas it's interesting and it's funny because my, my relationship with black christmas is kind of the opposite as you it's similar mm-hmm. as you as with halloween because i saw it very late in life and my first thing was like well this isn't very impressive it's kind of boring and of course i rewatched it, right. you know a decade later and was like holy fuck like what was i thinking this the original halloween is a film where um i remember my, my like i was a kid and my uncle put it on it was like probably amc richard and probably yep and i remember watching the title you know the, the music's playing and the pumpkins going and my uncle goes ooh halloween and my dad goes shh because my mom was in the kitchen <laughs> so basically my dad was trying to show my like five-year-old self some halloween without my mom noticing Yeah, it's way too scary for kids. And I'm sure lots of parents will come to me and say, like, actually, this is good gateway horror. But I mean, I think there's a reason why the original film is a classic, even though it doesn't touch me the way it touches a lot of other people. It's hard to argue that Carpenter hasn't made like the perfect synthesis between like plot and female friendship and like a really scary monster who is just unknowable. And then that fucking score. I mean, that's the story, right? Because there was that, that 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 famous story about the original film where they screened it, and every, the, the people were like, "This isn't scary," and it's because there was no score attached to it. And then they oh added the God. score, and people were jumping out of their seats. Yeah, there's a reason that John Carpenter doesn't make movies, but he continues to make scores. <laughs> the man is a genius. I I love the music. I think that's part of the appeal of it to me too. Even thinking about this this 2018 version, I mean. I played that soundtrack mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. all through the season into November because it's it's new Carpenter music. Yeah. And I think that always, you know, that's something that always gets me. It gets you in the mood, right? Yeah. I love his, you know, independent discography that's not attached to the, the movies that he's been doing. Um, those are really cool. But there's just something about, mm-hmm. you know, hearing Carpenter's music attached to a film that mm-hmm. just gets me every single time well yeah. i'll tell you both like it, no matter what if someone says oh there's a new halloween theme cover out i'm like fuck it i'm i, I can i can play this entire theme in my head like mm-hmm. without any aid but god damn it if you tell me there's a new cover i will play it but to this day and i may get shit for this but my actual my favorite version of this theme is actually the synthesized halloween 2 theme like i I have the Halloween 2 soundtrack, and that's actually what I listen to um, get me into the, the, the spooky spirit, if you will. Hmm. <laughs> I love the idea that people play horror scores independently of watching movies. Like, Richard, you probably wouldn't know this about me, but I'm... I'm almost like tone deaf when it comes to hearing scores. Like they really have to stand out for me to notice them. This is absolutely one of the cases where I always do. Ugh. 
Okay, well, everyone, so why don't we discuss how we got here? Because I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> there is, um, <laughs> we'll be back in five hours. There is a, a plethora of information. A, a lot of it, I'm not going to lie, is kind of useless. I was, like, parsing through all my notes, all my research, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, the, the minutia that people are putting into, like, production histories on this thing. I'm like, oh, my mm-hmm. God. Like, granted, good for y'all. It's great. It's just, like, I don't need to know that, like... Danny McBride said, oh, well, Michael Myers is a hulking beast, and we uh, wanted to keep him that way or whatever, you know? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Every soundbite, it's well documented. It, it is very well documented, despite the fact that this Blu-ray has um, not that many special features on it, which I'm assuming they're going to be oh, saving Oh, you know for... they're waiting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to get a, a, a David Gordon Green trilogy box set at the end of all of this. But... Let's go back in time to August of 2009. I promise it won't take long. (laughs) (laughs) So Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 comes out. And after that, he's like, well, I'm sorry, before that even comes out, he's like, I'm not making another sequel. Fuck that. Two days after this movie comes out, um, despite underperforming because it opened up against the uh, 3D film The Final Destination, the Weinstein Company goes, no, we're going to make a sequel. It's going to be Halloween 3D. And I I feel like that was a reaction to The Final Destination. Probably. Yep. I don't know. Because 3D was so hot. Remember those days when they tried to bring it back? (laughs) So they're like, hey, next summer, so less than a year from now, we're going to bring you Halloween 3D with Patrick Lussier directing and Todd Farmer writing. At the time, they were actually working on Drive Angry 3D for Warner Brothers. It was going to pick up right after Halloween 2. Lori was going to be arrested. But unfortunately, the wrench in their plan was Scout Taylor Compton was not going to return. And... I tried to figure out why she would decline this, and she made the Runaways around this time, the uh, okay. the Joan Jett movie with Kristen Stewart. So she was trying to be a quote-unquote serious actress? That's That was my thinking. I was like, oh, you know what? She got this gig, and she was like, no, 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 no. And not, not to shade Scott Taylor Compton. Like, it makes sense. <laughs> sure. Especially after the hell she went through in two, but still. So, you know, there were issues. They were like, oh, we're making it too fast. So Bob Weinstein delays pre-production until Drive Angry comes out. Unfortunately, Drive Angry was released in February of 11 and flopped super fucking hard, despite the fact that it's a really fun movie and everyone should see it. Um, (laughs) It was delayed again. And then they were like, cool, we're going to do it. But then they're like, no, we're not going to do it because Lucier, Farmer, and Weinstein are going to prioritize a Hellraiser reboot, which, as we all know, did not happen. (sighs) <sighs> that that is a tale for another time. <laughs> Don't make me upset. <laughs> so flash forward a couple of years to 2014. We're reviving it again because Scout Taylor Compton is like, you know what? Never mind. I'll come back and do this. Because the Runaways didn't do so well. That yes. <laughs> Again, I, no shade. It's just kind of like, oh, I had a guaranteed job, and then I left to do something experimental. The experimental thing didn't come back. I want to come back to the sure job. But now we're not doing 3D. No, 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 no. Um, it's going to be a found footage film. Because do you know what's really popular at this time? Paranormal activity. Paranormal activity. <laughs> But apparently none of the cast and crew liked this concept, so they scrapped that as well, which... Yeah, because that's a garbage idea. I'm sorry, folks. No. Uh, uh, did y'all follow all this as it was happening? Because I definitely was. So reading all this stuff, I was like, oh my god, I'm getting flashbacks to, like, reading all... This is why I don't trust things when they're announced. I need to see mm-hmm. production starting. Yeah, I, I followed it intently, actually. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Richard's like, I actually wrote a book about it, and... Uh... <laughs> Well, I was I was really intrigued by the idea of having Lori as kind of being like the new 
shape, mm-hmm. so to speak, that was kind of set up at the end of two. I thought that mm-hmm. was a really interesting idea. Um, and I know there was some talk about setting it like in an asylum yep. yeah, at yeah. one point, uh, and that sounded really interesting. Uh, but yeah, but then by the time they got to the found footage thing, it's like, well, you know, I don't, I feel like they don't really have a grasp on what they want to do. No. And like, I, I love found footage movies. Like, I was yeah. there at midnight for all the paranormal activity movies. Yep. But I feel like Halloween is not the franchise yeah. uh, to do that with. No, they're, they were obviously chasing fads, which, uh, as we've talked about numerous fucking times, the wine scenes are nothing if not cash hungry like fuckers <laughs> so obviously they were looking at what the trends were but the fact is, is all of the trends that they were chasing had already been made so by the time the film had have come out it would have felt like just passe it would have been bad and you're right richard like halloween as a found footage film i mean hey we ended up already kind of getting that with resurrection and it ain't good oh yeah but uh, although i will say that 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 aspect of resurrection is one of the more interesting parts of that film there okay okay but but nevertheless though you're you're right joe like they're too late to this because they're planning this in 2014 which is when the fifth paranormal activity is coming out and then the final entry would come out the next year and mm-hmm. we all know that movie's a piece of shit yeah it's already passe for sure yeah <laughs> <laughs> so going into 2015 now so now we're looking at patrick melton and marcus dunstan to write a new halloween film and in case you don't know these guys they are the co-writers of all three feast films they are the co-writers of saw four five six and seven mm-hmm. And they are the right co-writers of both collector movies with Dunstan directing both of them. Right. So this would have been more hard-edged. Yes, but this is going to be more of a recalibration, quote-unquote, instead of a reboot. Um, They were going to call it Halloween Returns. It was going to be a standalone film, but it was also going to act as a sequel to Halloween 2. So it was going to ignore 3 and moving (laughs) forward. Wait, where have I heard this before? This is all seeming like a bit of deja vu. I know! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're but, just repeating the same cycles over and oh my god we are all laurie strode but but here's the thing though and I, I actually like this idea they were gonna set it in 1988 and it was gonna involve michael myers escaping his execution from a power surge and going on a rampage in the town of russellville illinois i like the idea of doing it as a period piece i'm not gonna lie okay i mean they were gonna try to film it in europe though weren't they <laughs> Yeah, it didn't happen because they wanted to film it in Serbia, and they were like, no, we can't do that because that's not just super funny. (laughs) I feel like this was around the same time also where they were going to do a period piece of uh, Friday the 13th, and they talked Mm -hmm. about doing it as like a Days and Confused uh, in the 70s kind of slasher film. Uh, So I'm not sure which one came first, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, the Friday the 13th idea was circling around and then the wine scenes kind of... Right. You know what? <laughs> I think you're right because so I, I have read one of the drafts of Nick Antosca's Friday the Thirteenth like reboot script, and and that one is very much. And honestly, I think you're right, Richard, because it was around the time I started writing for Bloody, which would have been 2015. <laughs> oh my God! And then don't we get the Final Girls the very next year, which is like a period slasher film? Yep. Hmm. Well, I mean, the Weinstein's new to play the game, but here's the thing, though. I think that they were trying to do this because they were running out of time with these rights. Because right. by the end of 2015, Dimension Films no longer has the rights to Halloween because Halloween turns failed to go to production. So, you know, we could have gotten a Hellraiser revelation situation with Halloween Returns, so maybe it's for the best. Oh, 100%. Take everything away from those fuckers. <laughs> 
So the rights go back to Miramax, and in May of 2016, Blumhouse Productions and Miramax are announced to be co-financing a new film. Universal Pictures is going to distribute it through the studio's output deal with Blumhouse. And around this time, they also convinced John Carpenter to come on as a producer. Smartest thing they could have done. I think, I mean, I think we I can think for all of us, right? Like, that is kind of what... You needed the sign-off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when the rights were acquired by Blumhouse, okay, this is the weirdest piece of trivia that I found about this. So Adam Wingard was an original, it was the, like, for, like one of the first people in talks to direct this movie. What I found was he dropped out after being sated by an email of encouragement from Carpenter. So Carpenter was like, hey, man, like, I have faith in you, good job. And Wingard was like, oh, you know what? I'm good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he like- said... A mission to accomplish. Like, I don't need anything more. I don't need to risk making a bad movie because John Carpenter thinks I'm good. <laughs> Which, because around this time, do you know what Adam Wingard was making? Uh, 2016. Death Note? Blair It's after that, Witch. Blair Witch. Mm-hmm, oh. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he should have stuck with this. <laughs> Which, of course, is like, you know, because it was secret, right? It was the mm-hmm. woods until they announced it, what, like at the festival premiere? Yeah, it was for TIFF. Oh, God. <laughs> I like Blair Witch, but I know you don't. Um, I do not, no. <laughs> so, uh, February of 2017, Green and McBride are announced as handling screenwriting duties with Green directing and Carpenter advising the project. Early on, apparently, the script did have Laurie's daughter, Jamie Lloyd, in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but after a couple rewrites, they changed her to Karen. I don't know. Do y'all, do y'all remember this, too? Because Danielle Harris publicly, like... Oh, yeah. She she campaigned. She did. And here's my thing. I'm like, you know what? You do you. Good for you. People, and especially fans, were so mean to her. I saw what? so many people really? that were like, oh, what? sorry, bitch, your career is taking off and you want to cash in on this? Nope, sorry, not for you. And I was like, who, who are you to say this to someone? Like, come on. I've, I've always thought that she was really cool. I mean, I really like the the jamie character uh in the movies and so like i would have been you know completely on board with her uh returning she's done a lot of other cool horror stuff so yeah i i saw some of that too and i'm just like i don't understand why people are are so upset that she wants to return to a franchise that she clearly loves and has you know gone to conventions and talked about yeah she she is a horror enthusiast through and through like she has never turned her back on the genre she talks about it proudly all the time i can understand people saying oh you're in the movies that i don't like from this franchise but that is garbage she is a total ally but you know what okay so here's my thing and i love jamie lee curtis i'm so happy we get laurie strode back in this movie i will watch any movie with jamie lee curtis like whatever oh god here we go here we go that commercial (laughs) no but but that being said she is not the nicest <laughs> about horror films <laughs> and uh, she has turned her back on them I mean, which whatever like her career went places obviously it's great but mm-hmm. she has made statements about the horror genre that i'm just like oh I, I, it just rubs me the wrong way sometimes and i've never i've always gotten like kindness and respect towards the genre from from danielle harris so that, that, that's kind of my issue here yeah i think a lot of people recognize that jamie lee curtis is a workhorse like she will show up she will do the work she will promote the shit out of your yeah, movie will. and then she will collect her paycheck and she will move on <laughs> and again like no shame it's not like he, she has to bend over backwards right. for like a film you know 40 years later she obviously thought there was enough here to come back several times so that's great but 
yeah, I mean, there have definitely been projects where you're like, okay, you know, you're you're showing up because the check cleared. Got it. That's fine. And I can't falter for that. But it's yeah. also like, you know, as a fan, it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, oh, I, I just I want to keep this sacred image of you in my head. <laughs> She's a fair weather actress. She she <laughs> shows up and sometimes she goes away. Um, did you guys ever watch uh, Scream Queens? We oh did. yes, yes, yes. 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 Yeah. She was she was interesting in that. <laughs> I mm-hmm. I love Scream Queens, even the second season, which everyone's like, oh, it really fell to shit. And I was like, no, it just got dumber. Like that that's all it is. Like, and if you don't like that, that's fine. But like, <laughs> I I was on board for all of it. <laughs> Trace is a big fan of like women behaving badly, and also like shows and movies going to the point of camp ridiculousness. Well, yeah. Yes. Yep. Nothing. To <laughs> I was add like, to go that. ahead, try to fight me on that. <laughs> no, I, I, no. I was, I was going to expand, but I was like, no. You actually like really succinctly described me. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So filming on this, it lasts from January to February of 2018 in Charleston, South Carolina. Response to the film's first test screening did lead them to schedule reshoots in Charleston in June of that year. I don't know what those reshoots were, so I'm, I'm sure they're out there. Actually. I'm sure they might even be on the Halloweenies podcast episode of this film. So if you want, like, really, 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 like, in-depth deep dive into the production of this film, please go check out Halloweenies' episode on it. Although, I'm pretty sure they all hated it. (laughs) But they'll also talk about it for about three hours, so you will get that depth of coverage, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. It had its world premiere at the, um, Joe, the Toronto International Film Festival on September 8th, 2018. Mm -hmm. Where were you that night, Joe? I was in the theater. I was reviewing the film. <laughs> it was not one of my finer moments. Uh, Why is that? Please, please, please explain. So this was an interesting experience, and I'm sure you both had the opportunity to go to like big premieres, and I think it's easy to get swept up in the energy. Like Jason Blum was there, Jamie Lee Curtis was there. It was the first time the film had ever been screened for a public audience. People were losing their shit. It was midnight, so it's like the most hardcore fans ever. <laughs> And then I had to watch the movie. I mostly liked it. There were a couple of quibbles. Dr. Sartain. And then I had to immediately run out of the theater and try to write a, like, a reasonable sounding review (laughs) at about 2.30 in the morning. And it's not my best work. And I don't think it's an accurate review of the film. Like... My opinions have really shifted on it over time, but at that moment, I thought it was a slam dunk. I thought it was really good at handling Laurie's PTSD and various things. And it, I think it's, if you ever want to see what festival brain looks like to a film critic, <laughs> go and read my review of this film. Do you have one of these types of experiences, Richard? Not, not, not with this film specifically, but like any festival film or something. Uh, not a festival film, but I will tell you that, uh, I got a last minute assignment when X-Men Apocalypse came out. Oh, <laughs> no, Richard, no. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, uh, stayed up really late writing it. And, uh, yeah, it was something of a, of a fever dream of, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not my best work. Like you said, uh, <laughs> That um that that is me and Don't Breathe. Uh, my first big South by Southwest opened with a surprise release of Don't Breathe. I am more than a little inebriated, and I went home at three in the morning and wrote that review while still inebriated. And um, yeah. not my best work. <laughs> no, it's. I think sometimes, and I'm not say I'm not suggesting any of these films necessarily are indicative of that, but it's really hard to do a film justice, even a film that's like bombastic and actiony or mm-hmm. a little ridiculous, if it, 
Scott's X-Men Apocalypse, but um, it's hard to do a film justice and really give it the kind of critical thought that it deserves to try to work with people's expectations in a review like when you're writing under the clock like oh i've got to hit this deadline or i've got to try to beat somebody else's review going up and them getting all the clicks like i don't always think that we're doing our best work under those conditions yeah that's i mean and you know for me just to go off on the subject a little bit like that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why i've kind of moved more so into doing you know features and and essays and follow-up pieces rather than straight reviews because i never liked the feeling of immediately seeing a movie and then having to write about it i really like to to take my time and and think about it and i would say that you have done an excellent job of that we actually referenced your recent piece on Candyman when we covered the film Mm. uh back in august and it was like it was so helpful for letting us work through our feelings and recognizing the point of view that we had compared to maybe other people's points of view and who the film was actually for. Like, uh, yeah, I think you found some really great success in doing some of these longer form, really in-depth editorials. Thank you. I also think that comes from too, though. I mean, like, you know, writing editorial is, uh, be, no matter how much distance you have from the film, it's so different. It's such a different frame of mind for me, at least, when writing a review. And I know that's not the same for everybody, but honestly, like, when I'm writing a review, I'm not always dipping into themes and analysis, you know? I'm like, is this a competent movie? Is it good? Is it bad? Mm-hmm. I'm, I may take things into consideration, have, like, a paragraph on, oh, I love, for Halloween 2018, oh, yeah, the way the film handles trauma, blah, blah, blah. This is what it's trying to say, blah, blah, blah. But, like, an editorial where you're focusing on that really lets you hammer into that and just, like, go to town, right? Yeah. Go to town on the trauma. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, this premieres at TIFF. Um, mostly positive reception from that, and then it's released theatrically about a little over a month later on October nineteenth, two thousand eighteen. It grosses seventy six point two million dollars its Holy opening weekend. Mother, <laughs> I, I remember. I feel like estimates were in the fifties, and this just blew yeah. everything out of the water. I mean, it was interesting because people knew it was going to be big. Like, once again, they were able to capitalize on the anniversary. They had Jamie Lee Curtis back again. They had John Carpenter, which is something that H2O didn't really have in the same capacity. Mm -hmm. And it felt like a watershed moment. And I remember people even saying, oh, this is going to be it. We're going to start seeing Nightmare on Elm Street come back. We're going to see Friday the 13th come back. Like, this is going to reinvigorate slashers to a degree we haven't seen sense scream because there's so much money on the table mm-hmm. yeah and weirdly it didn't happen i mean we know why with friday the 13th but well but i i so what i'll say is i think that this really did help reinvigorate slashers just not our classics i mean yeah. we're getting five cream scream uh <laughs> in january but obviously we know friday the 13th is mired in a lawsuit and blah blah mm-hmm. blah blah, blah but so many of these, like, direct-to-streaming or VOD releases are, like, smaller horror films. Like, we've had a good amount of slashers this year. And yeah. I am I, I do – I'm not going to credit Halloween 2018 solely with that, but I do think it helped renew interest in the subgenre. And we're mm-hmm. finally getting out of vampires, and we're bringing back in a slasher <laughs> resurgence. <laughs> Fuck you, vampires and zombies. Slashers are back. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so this is the second best ever opening weekend of October behind Venom, which I think came out, like, the week before. Mm. The biggest debut ever for Blumhouse. uh, The highest grossing film of the Halloween franchise, period, just on the opening weekend alone. I love that stat. It's a wild. 
Second biggest horror opening weekend after It from the year before, which I think was like 123 million. Best performance for a film featuring a lead actress over 55 years old. Yeah, and it stayed in the number one spot its next weekend, grossing 32 million. Goes on to gross about 160 million dollars domestically and 96 million dollars internationally for a worldwide gross of roughly 256 million dollars on a budget of 10 to 15 million dollars. Yeah. But Universal claims to have spent an estimated $76 million on advertising. So we're looking at a profit of about $128 million, which is still nothing to, like, balk mm-hmm. at. Yeah, I will believe that marketing cost because you could not go anywhere without seeing this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, reception, we're looking at a 79% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.8 out of 10. On Metacritic, it's got a 6.7 out of 10. And on Letterboxd, it's got a 6.6 out of 10. So... <laughs> everyone's kind of in the same boat there. Yeah, I think a lot of people recognize that there's some good things, and there's also a couple of things that we're hoping they're going to course correct on in the sequels. And I think that we'll be addressing some of those things in the plot summary. Indeed. Let's begin. So we open the film at Smith... So we open the film at Smith... Smith... God, Smith's Grove (laughs) Rehabilitation Facility... And we got two British investigative journalists. So we have Aaron, who is played by Jefferson Hall, as well as his colleague Dana, who is played by Rianne Rees. Uh, this is British Ellie Kemper, and you cannot convince me otherwise. <laughs> uh, yeah, not incorrect. And they are meeting with Dr. Sartain, who is played by Haluk Bilgener. And he is... <laughs> I heard that I, groan. I, don't, don't y'all feel immediately... Like, I feel like immediately this film kind of sets it apart from the other films because I, I know it's so silly, but it's like the way we open the film, it's just shots of close-ups on clocks, on eyeballs, on things. And mm-hmm. I feel like immediately there's a sense of style in this film that you don't see in a lot of the sequels, which is honestly surprising to me because the cinematographer of this it was actually shot a lot of Vice Principals and The Righteous Gemstones. Ah. But also paranormal activity, too. Who knew? Ah. So the the found footage connection made its way into this film regardless. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. I remember they did prominently feature a lot of this in the trailers. um, Yeah. But I remember being so awestruck by the visual of the checkerboard where Michael Myers, who is, of course, uh, partially voiced slash consulted by nick castle and played physically by james jude courtney but the scenes where dana and aaron are more or less antagonizing him with the mask here i just think it really does set this film apart like it's a a pretty interesting way to open this film and re-establish the franchise Richard, what do you think? Like, do you, do you like that the this is what the film opens with? Because I will confess, I was actually surprised it didn't open with Laurie Strode. Yeah, I I like this, um, particularly in terms of the the visuals of it. You know, I have thoughts about the the podcasters. I think it's one of the oh God. the weaker <laughs> elements of the film that I wasn't particularly interested in them or believed no. uh, in their kind of work that they were doing but yeah the 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 checkerboard thing and then them holding the mask out to him like i thought that was a really cool uh visual choice mm-hmm. you should all be happy to know so um there uh, there are deleted scenes on this blu-ray they amount to about 12 minutes of footage and in my research apparently the original cut of this movie was about two hours and 15 minutes long and they yeah. cut 
30 minutes, which included full scenes and extensions of scenes out for pacing. Right. And one of the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray is um, more podcasters. Um, they are fucking in the shower. <laughs> oh, don't need that for sure. But but here's the thing. So, A, not all the stuff they cut is on this Blu-ray, which makes me leads me to believe that, yes, there is going to be... A, maybe a master cut or at least a big edition somewhere that comes out. Mm-hmm. And I'll get this out of the way now. So I, this is a movie where I've seen this about four or five times and I like all of the parts in this movie. I like the podcasters. Um, I think that I don't think they need to die as late as 40 minutes into the movie, which is what happens. Like mm-hmm. they need to die way earlier. <laughs> right. But there's so much in this movie. We have the podcasters. We have Lori. We have the kids. We Then we have, within the kids, we have Allison and her thing. But then with Lori, we have Judy Greer, who's kind of in this movie. Kind of. It's a thing where I notice every time I watch it, I'm like, I just wish we had more of everything. And Joe, you kind of said to me earlier offline, you were like, this movie's too long. And I do agree with you, but at the same time, I'm like, there's not, it's not long enough because I don't think mm. anything is really given enough time to breathe. And so, you know, when you see accusations about how the film handles trauma and how it's one dimensional and lazy, I don't think that's true. I just don't think we're seeing all of it. Like, I want longer drunk Lori at the dinner table. I want more scenes with Lori and Karen interacting or where they're actually having a conversation. And that's really where my issue lies with this film is where I'm like, I like everything that they're doing and setting up, but then I just constantly want more of it. I feel like there's just not enough here. Not enough things are being able to given <laughs> they're not given enough screen time okay, to shut make... up shut up shut up all right sorry i'm done let us refute this because it's not that we need more of all of this <laughs> we need less of some of this and more of certain things we need more Lori and karen and allison that is what people gravitate into in this film richard being like i don't love these podcasters like a They feel like they were written by M. Night the way that he writes critics. Like, this is somebody who doesn't like podcasters, who thinks that they have $3,000 to throw away. Like, (laughs) I... A, they're investigative journalists. How dare you? Um, (laughs) I Yeah, I I lost it. I was like, $3,000? Who the fuck has that as a podcaster? Like, like, these are just ridiculous characters. I know what they're doing in here as narrative constructs. They are here to usher the story along, to reintroduce Michael Myers, to introduce this Dr. Sartain, who also doesn't really need to be a character in here. We could just have the film open with Michael being transferred and the bus going off the road. Like, we have seen that in other films. That would have been fine. Yeah, I, I think for me, you know, like, every time I watch this film, I walk away thinking... I wish that we had more of, like, Vicky and Dave yes. and Alex. Yes. Because yeah. they're fun characters and we don't get to know them at all. Yeah, and I'm always, like, so disappointed. Like, I I, I tweet this, I think, probably, like, several times a year. And I'm always, like, <laughs> I'm always, like, Vicky and Dave, like, I wish they had lived at least for one of the sequels. Right. And, yeah, it's, like, I feel like in, in the original, like, I feel like you get to spend time with Linda and, and and Bob and you know her her whole group of friends and this time they feel so quickly dispatched and yet I think that they're the most fun to watch and the most interesting. Miles Robbins is like doing some really interesting, like making some really interesting choices in this movie. I think. Yeah, and he's such a great actor. Yeah, and we really don't get to spend any time with. And they're both killed off screen. Mm. Yeah. Like- 
<laughs> I mean, I think we're going to see that get rectified in the sequels. I think we're going to get, like, harder, bloodier cuts. I mean, and, uh, so this is kind of also where, like, because, so they had, you know, Ryan Turek on uh, as an executive producer on this one. Maybe he's a producer. I think it's executive producer. And Ryan Turek, like, so when I saw this at Fantastic Fest, you know, Blum came out and introduced it. You know, he had Turek with him. He had Jamie Lee Curtis with him. And he was like, he called up Turek and he was like, and I love Ryan Turek. I think he's a great guy, really nice, great journalist, great producer, whatever. Okay. But he was like, we had him on this and he was con- so that when making it, he could be like, oh no, the fans will like this. Oh no, the fans won't like that. Oh no, the fans uh, will like okay. this. Oh yeah, do don't do that. The fans won't like that. And I heard that, and I was like, "Huh, um, that I hmm. it, it's like I don't know. I, I don't know if that's the best way to go about it because watching this, there's a lot of fan service in this movie. You know, there are things yes. that if you are a fan of this franchise, you will notice visual cues. Oh yeah, there's homages up the ass in this movie. But it's also kind of like, well, it's one fan. Like, I mean, yeah, I, he's kind of gauging what, what a community of fans is saying, but it's also kind of like, I I feel like that's a weird way to go about the movie because I feel like it, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just speculating here, but like things that, you know, maybe Green and McBride and their other co-writer, uh, Jeff Fradley, like, I don't know. Like, was there things that they had that, that, <laughs> that Turek was like, nope, cut that out. <laughs> it didn't pass the super fan sniff test, right? Yeah, exactly. But whatever. We'll get into it as we get into more uh, fan stuff. <laughs> uh, okay. So, yes, via these podcasters, we are reintroduced to Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis. We learn a little bit of exposition about what has happened in the 40 years, because, of course, in this version, she didn't become a headmistress of an elite Southern <laughs> California uh, school. In this case, she basically became Linda Hamilton from Terminator 2, uh, but she also is twice divorced. She describes herself as a basket case, and we also learn that she has a daughter who was taken away by social services at age 12. So we are laying a foundation for a woman who has never been able to escape the past trauma that she has been through, and it has negatively impacted the relationship. So I think part of my problem with doing this is that for me as somebody who really enjoys halloween h2o mm-hmm. i'm immediately starting to draw comparisons between the way that that laurie strode handled her ptsd with her son versus this older laurie strode who is still making some of those same calculated errors for lack of a better term and yeah like so then i'm watching the movie looking for those comparisons throughout as opposed to just being able to say cool what is this lori 40 years later doing yeah, I, I I do think that the comparisons to H2O, I mean, they're apt, you know, I think that's always the thing is, you know, people are like, oh, which one handles her trauma better? And at the end of the day, it's, you know, pick your own adventure. Um, yeah, a little but bit. But I, I like this Lori, honestly, and I like that she's messy because I do, I, I say messy in the sense that even with the conclusion of this film where it's like, oh, she has this grandmaster plan, but then she's like immediately like thrown off the balcony by Michael Myers. I'm like, people are like, well, she's been waiting for 40 years. Why would that happen? I'm like, well, but she's a mess (laughs) she's a mess and he's an unpredictable monster uh just to earmark the fact that uh yeah there has been a lot of good work done on the comparisons between the two the 20 and the 40 people can take a look at former guest anya stanley's piece for collider and psychoanalysis has a full episode that they did for the salem horror fest so a little trick of editing here too and i actually want to know what y'all think of this so there is a deleted scene that is an extended version of the scene when she is having target practice with all you know her mannequins and stuff Mm -hmm. it goes further to where she goes up to the mannequin you know she 
shoots a point blank in the head, and then she goes inside. Mm-hmm. And she's cleaning all of her guns, and as she has this big revolver, she contemplates, looks at it, and puts it under her chin. Oh. And, like, actively contemplates suicide. And what stops her is the doorbell or the buzzer ringing from the podcasters. Huh. I, li- I, I actually kind of like that. I do too. Oh, interesting. I don't think that would have played well. Well, and I think that's why they cut it. I I don't think it would have played well. But again, that's like, and maybe it's one dimensional. But to me, I'm like, cool. There's another layer showing how fucked up she is right now. Because I I love that scene that comes later where she's waiting for the bus in, in the car. And you know, to me, that always kind of felt like, you know, in some ways, it could be uh, a suicide scene. And so, yeah, I think that that would have added an interesting, an interesting layer to it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I like that. I think the film underestimates how interesting these scenes are with with the str- like, and I get it because they're probably like, "Hey, we got to get to the killing," but uh, I really, I really enjoy these quieter moments, and I, I do wish we had more time to let these breathe. Well, I think what's what we're seeing is the age old issues that we always encounter with slasher films, which is that we've got studios and marketing people who are in charge of this and saying we need to get to the murders faster because our target audience of teenage boys wants to see the killing and there's a whole audience that they're disregarding like women and older fans and and fans who don't have attention difficulties like we can follow a story we can appreciate character development and we often end up seeing a bit of a compromise where they'll give us a bit of character growth and then at a certain point it's like no now we need to just have murders happening the whole time and i do feel like this film doesn't hit that compromise point quite right Mm -hmm. so we have to have all of these characters and some of them we'd like to see more of they don't last, like you said, Vicky. And then some of them, it's like, why are we even in here? Like, do we need a whole sequence where this son and father come upon the overturned bus? Like, it's moody as fuck. I think it's shot really well. I like the lightning in the background. It's really atmospheric. It's a good scene. But also, we could just have Deputy Hawkins show up on the crime scene and have all of these bodies be, like, grotesquely mutilated and Dr. Sartain is there. Like, we don't need that. But it's in there because somebody said, oh, your target audience is going to be bored otherwise. I really think that that scene with the the father and son in the car was the seed for uh, Danny McBride's legacy of the white-tailed deer hunter. Like, it's the exact same plot, like, followed through for a whole 90-minute movie. Interesting. Like, I again, I don't think it's a bad scene, but I think we get that scene, and as a result, we don't get more of Allison or Karen or Lori. I agree with you, Joe, because I do like this scene, but you're right. Like, so we're leaving this scene in at the expense of cutting out, you know, something else. Um, and again, like, I whatever the other, uh, like, 13 minutes of deleted scenes that are not on this Blu-ray, like, I don't know what they contain. I know for a fact that Allison's chase scene is longer at some point, but we do not have that footage. (laughs) And this is also, I mean, I guess, well, we're not there yet, sorry, we're not there, but um, I I like the dad and son scene because I kind of, I like the humor in the whole dancing thing, like, and... I, I actually think the humor in this film works really well. I know it does not work well for everybody, but I really enjoy the moments of levity we have here. Yeah, I, I like it too. I feel like, you know, just as someone who's a big Danny McBride fan, like I can tell that, you know, those are, are his lines. Like I can tell that someone wrote that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I really appreciate those elements. Like even if, 
even if every joke doesn't entirely land for me, I kind of appreciate the fact that I can see, mm-hmm. okay, a writer with a voice did this, and it's not just a yeah. bunch of studio people putting things in. Yeah, it doesn't feel cookie cutter in that regard. And I think, I mean, I'm someone who the comedy is more... Uh, it's maybe a little bit more miss than hit. Right. Uh, I do think that there are very funny parts of this, and I think they actually do work. And I, I recognize that my sense of humor is a little bit different from a lot of other folks. But I agree with you, Richard. I think, you know, we dismiss the use of comedy in horror as though it somehow makes the film less effective. And I think it just makes it different. And there's a lot of horror films that we love and hold up that we say are super fucking scary. And it's like, that movie's also very funny. Like there are moments of comedy in the thing. There's a lot of comedy in the screen films. Like we love those movies. You don't hear people trash talking it. And that's, that's something also that, you know, Ari Aster has talked about recently where, you know, he said that people, you know, say his movies are horror, but he considers them more to be like, like family comedies yeah (laughs) Yeah. which i think is is hilarious and like the the one that he's doing next with with joaquin phoenix he describes it as a dramatic comedy but then like the plot sounds absolutely terrifying (laughs) (laughs) but uh, you mean you're saying that horror and comedy can like cross over sometimes (laughs) what i I think with this film though because i mean so you know there are people that are gonna be like oh i don't like the comedy in it and like you know Mm -hmm. it takes something like and we'll talk about it later but the bon me scene which you could lift because it's not it's just kind of there yeah but then you have something like Julian, because I've seen people complain, you know, oh, I don't like that character of Julian because he takes what should be a very tense and scary scene, which mm-hmm. is Vicky's getting killed. And he's making kind of these quips and one-liners, and he's right. diffusing the tension in the scene. And while I understand that that, that as a complaint, like just right. at its face value... I disagree that it diffuses the tension because to me, it's like this kid is acting like anyone would like, oh, shit, (laughs) I got to get out of this room. So I don't know. Like, it's a balancing act. And for me, the balancing act works well. But again, I I see why it wouldn't work for everybody. Yeah. Okay. well, let's let's maybe put a pin in that for now and we'll we'll introduce a few more characters. So uh, we have the Nelson household. So we have Father Ray, who is played by Toby Huss, who is... And he has peanut butter on his penis. (sighs) I I mean, there's a piece of comedy where I'm like, "Eh, do we need this in here? Oh, I like it! (laughs) It does tell us who he is, right? Like, he's a dad who doesn't trust the dude that his daughter is dating. And he's a bit like, oh, dad, you're so cringy. Come on, just don't. I mean, look, this to me is on the same level as the girls walking down the street in the first movie, right? When Linda's like, oh, I always forget my chemistry book and my algebra book and my blah, blah, blah. Like, it, it, we're just having time to sit with these characters and live in their existence. And this mm-hmm. is a dad that jokes about his penis openly in front of his daughter. <laughs> God. <laughs> At, At breakfast. breakfast. <laughs> I think more to me, I I really like Toby Huss. I've seen him in other things. And part of me is like, well, don't put in a great character actor and then underutilize him. Because I could have just as easily seen Karen as a single mother with a daughter. And she's trying to do better than she had with her single mother. Yeah, but we need his body later. Uh, But we don't. Because we don't have murders all the time. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, he is in here so that he can be murdered later. Exactly. For yeah. sure. Uh, okay. Karen, Judy Greer, again, underutilized. But the good thing is that she survives. So I'm pretty sure that we're going to get a bit of course correction in future films. Well, and hopefully she gets to grieve her husband. Because I know there's not really time to grieve him at the end mm-hmm. of this movie. But man, she seems unfazed by that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's. I think that's one of my main complaints uh, in the okay. movie, too, is that there's not... A lot of time for anybody to grieve. Like, even, you know, even the Julian, like, his babysitter getting killed, which he seems to really like his babysitter. Yeah. Do we even see him again? Uh, No, I think he just runs out of the house. Yeah. (laughs) Julian's still, like, running around Haddonfield somewhere. (laughs) I do like his, like, comedic, like, oh shit moment. But, like, at the same time, it's like... I don't know, like, seeing, like, a human being that, like, you know and that you're close to just, like, brutally murdered in front of you, I feel like there should be some kind of sympathetic reaction to that. Uh, And, yeah, again, with with Toby Huss's character, I mean, like, he's brutally murdered and, like, Judy Greer is just like, all right, well, we got to take care of Michael, so. Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I will shed a tear afterwards. Right now, I have to stand at the bottom of the stairwell with a shotgun. She doesn't really see him, but, like, Lori gives her a look that's like, ooh, girl, um, he is (laughs) not in this world anymore. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? We'll handle flower arrangements after this is all over. Right now, I need you to act as bait. Get your ass down to the bottom of the (laughs) cell. Uh, okay, yes. And then we have Allison, who is played by Andy Matichak. I like her a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like this is giving her the same opportunity to show the range that Jamie Lee Curtis gets. Yeah, I I will I will agree with this. Um, but again, I'm sitting here like, oh, I want more from her because mm-hmm. I think she's very genuine. She's empathetic. She's compassionate. Like, yep. I like watching her. But then, I mean, what? She disappears for... So long. I I honestly, I almost always forget about her. And then I'm like, oh, right. She's still running through the woods. Got it. Okay. Now, there is there is at least a deleted scene. Like we we get more from her. We get her um, walking down the street. I think it's her introduction. And she sees a dog hanging from a tree and people are trying to pull it down, which and then Michael's watching her from the distance. We get another scene with her. Oh, it's when Vicky basically tells her like, hey, um, I can't go to the dance tonight because I had this last minute babysitting gig. And Mm. You know, we get more scenes, uh, like another moment between her and Cameron. So there is more time with these kids. And I think, again, I get why it's cut for pacing or whatever. But I think sure. that having more scenes like this in here would make the sla- like the, the the teen slasher segment in the second half of the film seem less, stand out less, I guess. Right. Yeah. It would feel more organic. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of the friends, yes, we've got Vicky, who's played by Virginia Gardner, and she has quietly grown on me over the years. Like oh, I, I love her. I first saw her in the Marvel TV show Runaways, and I was like, she's really bad. And then no, I saw Starfish. No, she's good in Runaways. <laughs> she's fine, but she's not great. Like she's not the best person in that cast, so she kind of recedes. I haven't seen it, but she's in this indie movie called Starfish. That yeah, was she's um... fucking great in it. Okay. But the thing with Vicky is, so again, and, and this is later, but the one conversation she has with Julian where they're discussing like, oh, you're getting weave, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. She gets more to play off of in that scene than Allison gets in this entire movie. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I I think she also gets to show comedic chops as mm-hmm. well as get to play the, you know, conventional scream queen kind of role there briefly. So I, I think the problem with Allison is that she's the Debbie Downer protagonist, right? Like, she's the one who's just trying to reconnect with her grandma. She's dealing with an overprotective mother. 
and then she's got a shitty boyfriend. Like that's Allison's arc in this first film. I also feel like she's she's isolated for so much of it. So like yeah. you never really get to see her like interact in a group setting. Like I I wish that that party scene had gone on a little bit longer because yes. I mean like that's so much of the fun of you know John Carpenter's original is that like you know. Lori is talking to her friends on the phone. She's like going over to the houses. Like she's, you know, she's in the car listening to, uh, don't fear the Reaper with Annie. Yeah. Like I feel like you get all of those interesting moments, but then Allison is, is mostly isolated, uh, or it's, you know, scenes with her family that don't really show who she is like outside of this family dynamic. But that's where the overcrowded narrative comes in, right? Yeah. Like there, we, we have to keep cutting back to different characters. And so it's not even that Allison gets lost in the mix. It's just that she, because she's not given as much compelling material, like she probably has the same amount of screen time as like Judy Greer or actually, fuck, even, even More, Jamie Lee yeah. Curtis, maybe. Maybe, yeah. But she's just like, there's nothing dynamic here. But that's also kind of where it feels like, I mean, we knew they were setting up a potential trilogy with this film, right? Yeah. So a lot of it does feel like setup, which is why I'm hoping that these sequels, again, will, I'll, after I see Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends, I'll walk back and watch this and be like, oh, you know what? Oh, there because it I know is. where it's okay. going. Here we go. I'm good. I like this movie more now. Right. So my thing is that, and, you know, you heard me say it off the top. I think you could excise the entire Dr. Sartain arc here because there, there really isn't, much to it unless we're going to do some kind of weird cult of thorn bullshit later on this idea of a doctor who is so obsessed with his patient it feels like it's only in here because we need a dr loomis character but then they decide to pervert or corrupt this character but then by killing him it doesn't end up going anywhere. So I just regret all the time and energy that we have wasted on this character. Like, why do we need to see him kill Hawkins? Why do we then need to see him get killed? Like, so, ugh. no, a question for both of you, because I, I will address this. The, uh, you're right. It is lazy. It is not done very well. And yes, him dying immediately. You're just like, well, what was the point of that? Mm -hmm. The, only reason he exists is to get Michael to Lori's house. Right, because Michael doesn't have any connection to Lori in this. Right. So my question to you two is, cool, okay, that's fine. Let's cut out Sartain. How do we get Michael to Lori's house? I mean, he could just chase Allison. Yeah. <laughs> like, literally, we could go from the cemetery, or sorry, we could go from the scene where uh, the fat, queer-coded friend of Cameron gets killed in the mm -hmm. motion sensor Oscar. light scene. Oscar, oh, thank you. Uh, by the way, my favorite scene in the film. Interesting. I mean, I'm sorry, in terms of horror, like a set piece, like a scary set piece. Right. That I actually wanted it to be longer than that motion sensor light sequence. Always, always, always. And I mean, our fucking common concern here is like, I needed more, I needed more, I needed more, but also I need less of this other bullshit. <laughs> like, think about it. If we didn't have to follow the fucking doctor, we could have had a longer scene there. We could have had more of Richard's, let's have them talk at the party. Let's actually, like, have Vicky and Allison interact a little bit more. Let's actually allow some of these characters to do things. And instead, it's like, well, how do we get Michael to Lori's house? It's like, um, after Oscar dies, she runs. She runs through the woods to Grandma's house. There, I fucking solved it. I'm a magician. <laughs> Sorry. It just, like, this feels so needlessly overcomplicated. And I do think part of it is that we're trying to set up a few more set pieces. We're trying to set up a few more kills. And... 
ah, I just, I get so worried with the marketing of the second one where it's like, hey, have you met a firefighter? They're all fucking dead in this town now. And I'm just like, (laughs) no, that is not the lesson we needed you to learn from Halloween 2018. It was, hey, we really like the three generations and the trauma and then kill a person every like 25 minutes. There you go. I uh, I think the other thing about Sartain is that, you know, I just, I don't think that the actor is interesting. Mm. I feel like I could forgive the fact that he's disposable if we had, like, a compelling actor. I mean, right. Donald Pleasance is amazing and irreplaceable, but, yes. like, this actor is not this anywhere close to this level. And so it just feels yeah. like, you know, they got this, like, you know, kind Goofy of... Goofy Albert Einstein lookalike. Yeah. Who just like I feel like he just doesn't fit the film. Like if they had got a really interesting character actor, right? You know who who had done something like interesting with the character, but I just I don't find that performance interesting at all. Well, question for you then: uh, Put Malcolm McDowell in this role. I'd be all for that. Yes, right? Because <laughs> immediately there's a like probably a very long list of really interesting dynamic actors that we think, oh, they're bringing such kooky energy or just, you know, something that's going to punch up these scenes. Because you're right, Richard, there's really, and, and no shade to this actor, I haven't seen him in anything else, but this character does not pop off screen. So even Mm -hmm. when he is doing wackadoodle things like, oh, you're just randomly killing a deputy for reasons we don't fully understand because you're obsessed with evil and darkness, that should be so weird and interesting and compelling. And instead, I'm just like, cool, you just killed Will Patton and now I'm actually really mad at you. (laughs) Yeah, it it needed like a like a like a Donald Sutherland or Michael Mc. Malcolm McDowell yes. kind of figure to, to bring something I mean, interesting, yeah. And I, because I, I, I don't like Malcolm McDowell in Rob Zombie's Halloween movies, but like it, it well, is he's what an it asshole. is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and granted, his role in the second one, like I've come to like over time. Once I, once I really separated it from Donald Pleasance's incarnation of the character, but yeah, I mean, obviously Malcolm McDowell is going to pop in this role with his five minutes of screen time. I just think even this film is very white. Like, we basically have two (laughs) actors of color. We've got Julian, and then we've got whatever the fuck is going on with this cowboy hat wearing presumably sheriff that maybe we'll see more of in successive films. I liked him, too. (laughs) But we gotta cancel Halloween. (laughs) I think he's interesting, but again, I'm just like, I don't know your name. I don't know what your deal is. He disappears completely. Like, we've just got all of these generic white police officers. I don't dig dig the cowboy hat in Illinois. I mean, the cowboy hat is a choice. (laughs) No, you know what? Okay, okay. I mean, you know what it reminds me of? It's fucking Creighton Duke from Jason Goes to Hell. (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay. Oh, my God. Let's get that actor, whose name I've now forgotten. But think of that energy that he brought to that movie. I a hundred percent agree with you, Richard. Like we needed a different actor if we were going to keep this storyline in because it is snoozy when it should be wackadoodle. What the fuck? But it's brief. It's brief. Luckily, like, it- but it's not Trace. Think about. I mean, you're right in the fact that it's probably like five minutes total. Right, right. But at the same time, that's five minutes that we could have been spending with all of these other people. Like you're can. Your criticism is I needed more. Yeah. And your more is going to this fucking guy. <laughs> it's fair. No, that's totally fair. You are, you, you're great. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, folks. We are bouncing around a yeah, lot. We- but- 
we have thoughts. <laughs> uh, okay, so yeah, we're, we're introduced to these kids. We do the exposition stuff. It's more about like, grandma and what's happened over the last 40 years. Grandma's a hot mess. Got it. And I wonder if that's an issue too, right? Because obviously they call this movie Halloween, so noobs would come into it and be like, oh, I'm watching a Halloween movie, but it's the mm-hmm. only one. Um, so it, it, whatever. Because you know those people that did that, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's a bunch of people who are like, I'm not going to watch 10 other movies, even though I've been told I only had to watch one. It's like, no, I bought a ticket and I went to the theater. And here's the thing. I, I don't mind. I like that concept. Hey, you know what? There's 10 sequels. You're overwhelmed by it. You're intimidated by it. Fine. Forget it. You only have to watch the first one and you're good. But as a result of that does mean the first half of this movie is a lot of let me catch you up to speed just in case. I don't have an issue with that because I do think that for folks like us who have a relationship to the franchise... I'm using this exposition to help me delineate between the other, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like where the franchise fractured and went into different timelines. Like I'm using this information to be like, okay, this is who Laurie Strode is in this timeline. That's important for me because I'm then not going to confuse her with the headmistress or the chick with the bad wig who went to the hospital. <laughs> Cause that wig is terrible. All right. <clears throat> Uh, okay, so let's talk about Allison's shitty boyfriend, Cameron, who is played by Dylan Arnold. What do we think of Cameron? Uh, I mean, he's he's fine. I feel like he's the typical high school boyfriend asshole. But again, like, in terms of the decision of, like, which characters to kill, like, I feel like he could have easily went mm-hmm. uh, and you save, uh, you know, her her friends for another movie. I mean, I know he's... Cameron's going to be in this next one, and I know he has some relation yes. to uh, another character. Yeah, so I actually have an answer for you, and I have a, I have an answer to also why he wasn't killed, and why he literally just disappears from this movie. So he is, his last name is Elam. Elam. Uh, he is the son of the bully from the first movie that pushes down um, Tommy Doyle and the pumpkin, and he's like, throwing like bricks at the Myers house, and Loomis is like, Lonnie, get your ass out of here! <laughs> but here's the thing. There is another deleted scene and it is after cameron you know kisses that girl and he throws allison's phone in the pudding which really should not fuck up the phone by the way it's not liquid so after that and before allison connects with the uh the schlubby friend who's gonna get killed in the motion sensor place mm-hmm. we have cameron chasing after allison after dumping her phone in the pudding he gives her her phone he apologizes uh he keeps apologizing saying hey this is what happened with that girl i'm sorry i handled it really poorly which right. i appreciated because i was like wow he really turned into an asshole like super quick because yes. he wasn't like this before this scene correct so he says i didn't handle what i'm really sorry please let's go back and have a good time unfortunately the cops come up because they're imposing a curfew cameron it is uh, gets really fucking defensive he clearly doesn't like cops um it's led it's inferred that it's because of his dad his dad has been in and out of jail a lot right and then they make fun of cameron's dress and he tells them to fuck off so they cuff him he goes to jail when this is happening, the schlubby friend Oscar walks up and Cameron's going, hey, man, please make sure Allison gets home safe. Right. Why was this not in the movie? <laughs> yeah, like that scene sounds essential. And I'm I'm interested, Richard, I talked about this with Trace offline. I feel like part of this is that they want to keep him as a bit of an asshole because part of this film's narrative is that like... It's about women sort of taking charge and being in control, having agency and so on. So I couldn't help but wonder if this was not only a way to isolate Allison and get her and Oscar off by themselves, but maybe to 
try to like solidify that message of you know okay all of these men are kind of pricks and the girls are better off on their own yeah i mean i i do think that's that's interesting but like at the same time i feel like it would have been more interesting to like maybe not go the like cliched asshole boyfriend route um i mean like he still like made a mistake but i think like the fact that he apologized i feel like that feels like so I guess like contemporary and Mm -hmm. and, and modern uh, in a way that we don't really see in slasher movies in terms of like using, you know, a lot of tropes. I feel like that would have been an interesting kind of turn on the typical convention. Well, especially because they're at this fucking Halloween dance in a gender flipped Bonnie and Clyde costume. So Mm -hmm. I'm going into the scene thinking, oh, he's progressive. He's a good boyfriend. Like he's he's not afraid to show a feminine side or something like that. And then instead, he just becomes this really typical teen douchebag. Well, and that's the thing, right, though, cutting this scene completely changes this character, because yes. as you said, Richard, in in this cut we have, we end the movie being, oh, wow, that guy was an asshole. He just disappeared from the die? movie. Why didn't he die? <laughs> yes, I saw so many women being like, that shitty boyfriend needed to go. I don't yes. know why we had to kill Vicky and Ben. And with this scene, it's like, oh, wow, he's actually not a bad guy. He is apologizing and taking responsibility for his actions, and he's just arrested. That's why he's out of the movie. Like, completely changes the film. And honestly, now watching Halloween Kills, when I'm pretty sure they're going to kill him off because of how much hate this character gets. For sure. Like, it's kind of like, oh. (sighs) Nope, you miscalculated again. (laughs) It just seems like something you should have left in. (laughs) Yeah, I don't get any pleasure out of actively hating characters and rooting for them to die unless that is their sole purpose. And it doesn't seem like that was what this character was meant to be. And now it's going to be what we get. Yeah, I would much rather them, you know, give us flawed but human characters and make us feel something when they die instead of just like actively rooting for a person to die. (laughs) Wait, Richard, Richard, are you asking for like three dimensional characters that we care about? Sir. And, and and to go back to that earlier deleted scene with the kids again, like there's a scene where he's talking to, to the Shelby friend Oscar and he's, and Oscar's like like, kind of making a rude, lewd comment about Allison. And he goes, Hey, don't fuck this up for me. I really like this girl. Like, (laughs) It, it feels like the character has two different sides, like a Jekyll and Hyde. And we see the, we see the hide come out at the dance, but it doesn't make any sense to us. Yeah. So, I mean, again, granted, had I not seen that, would I feel like, would I be like, whatever, this character sucks, he'll die in the sequel? Yeah, mm-hmm. sure, absolutely. Yeah, but now yeah, that yeah. I know that this scene exists and they willingly cut it out, I'm just kind of like, all right, well, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> it was a yeah, choice. Now, now, that I, now that I know, I need like a Topher Grace cut of this. <laughs> 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 oh, boy. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Allison's relationship to her mother and her grandma, because this is around the time when they're at school, and Allison obviously sees grandma recreating scenes from the original, only instead of Michael Myers looking, it's grandma. Do y'all like these recreations? I mean, I think the, the, the biggest ones are, yes, this school scene and, you know, Lori falling over the balcony and, oop, body's gone. Like, those are the most obvious visual homages to the original film, but do y'all like them? Yeah, yeah, I like them. I like them. I think it's interesting because... I hadn't really thought about it, but Richard, you cued me when you were talking about Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 and where it would have gone in the third one where Laurie almost becomes Michael. And it seems like that's a little bit what this film is trying to do, right? Like she's so 
infatuated with him that she has actually begun to adopt his mannerisms like Mm. she is in a way almost stalking her granddaughter (laughs) yeah (laughs) like not in a negative malicious way but it's like okay your obsessiveness has now started to dominate the way that you even behave around people you like (laughs) also therapy for everyone in this film I, I do love these exchanges, though, like the scene when she gives her the money and she's like, fuck college, I go to Mexico. Like Again, like I I love this dynamic between the two. I love mm-hmm. Allison calling her out and being right. like, can you just get over it? Like, th- this is actually what, like, what I really, really liked in this movie. And tell me, Trace, would, would you have liked a little bit more of it? I would like a little bit more of would it. Would you have liked it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because this scene and then the dinner scene, like, you know, we've, we've had it established that Karen does not get along well with her mother. You know, she has lied to Allison about inviting her to this graduation dinner or whatever the celebration is. I don't even know what they're celebrating. It's like uh, she's, she's on the f- honor society. OK, I'm like she's got a fucking sash. What is this? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and this is like, again, like so we get that scene and we get like the the scene which have said earlier, uh, alluded to earlier, where she's waiting outside the prison holding the gun and screaming like these mm-hmm. are good moments yes, yes they give jamie lee curtis something to do they give judy greer something to react to they tell us things about allison and how she is forced into a mediator position between these two women and i fucking want more yeah. <laughs> i just want more like this dinner scene is so it's so brief. good it's so good but it's so brief like laurie yeah. shows up she just slams back a glass of wine which again h2o to me h2o and then she sits down at the head of the table and just starts going off and it is so fascinating to watch how everyone reacts to her and then she just leaves and it's like that was maybe 60 seconds why are we leaving this combustive family relationship when we could really get into this a little bit more oh because no one's being murdered we're talking about sandwiches. <laughs> well, because I, th- I think I think this is when we're about to. Co- oh, because we're, we're going to the bus crash after this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to the bus. Oh my god, bus crash after this. We're going to the bus <laughs> crash after this. <laughs> Where are we going? The bus crash after this. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So bus crashes. A bunch of people die. We've got the father son thing. Sure, they kill a child. Yes, I. Nice nod to Annie's death in the first movie. Hmm. Uh, I do like the fact that he shoots Dr. Sartain in the shoulder because he is a child handling a gun in the dark. Do they do they explicitly say that Sartain is the one that crashed that helped like that let Michael go and crash the bus and whatever? I it's inferred. I don't think it's I mean, I think you could read it as Michael is supernatural and and very strong and he crashed it because he saw that they were on the move. Or you could assume that it's, oh, why was Dr. Sartain getting on the bus? He didn't need to oversee this transport. No. But I don't think they make it clear. Like, you can read it either way. Right. Podcasters die next. Yeah. Uh, We're also introduced to Deputy Hawkins, who, as we mentioned, is played by Will Patton. And uh, we get a little bit more where the podcasters are talking about, okay, this is what you need to know from 1978 and the babysitter murders. And then... Yes, uh, they go to the gas station and we get the recreation of all of that. And I think this is where people are like, oh, the movie's kicking into high gear now. And I like, like, you know, Michael dropping the teeth over the thing. It doesn't, I, I was kind of like, that seems kind of weird that he would do that. But you know what? Whatever. It's, it's a cool visual. Sure. Um, unfortunately, uh, and this is me. This is not the movie's fault, really. But it just reminds me of that bathroom scene from H2O. Yeah. Yep. 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 I mean, I, and I think 
in certain regards, this film is implicitly acknowledging all of those other films. Like it said, we're not doing two through whatever, but it clearly touches on all of them except Season of the Witch, which of course we don't ever acknowledge. Although it does have the masks. Oh, it does have the masks, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So in in a way, like, I wouldn't be surprised if they said, oh, we like this scene from H2O, we're going to put it in here. Well, and to me, it's like, oh, fans were really upset that that mother didn't die in H2O because, like, he just Mm -hmm. takes her purse and drives the car away instead of killing her and her daughter. Right. So it feels like a reaction to that, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we get the iconic slow-mo shot as he goes into their <laughs> trunk and gets the mask i'm telling you right now though if i am british ally kemper and i'm in this stall mm-hmm. and my one of y'all walks in to save me and then michael starts attacking you you're out the door already say, i am getting my ass out of there <laughs> she just stays in the stall <laughs> so what you're saying is you're gonna brenda this from scary movie too is like ah, oh, mutilate yes. his white ass i love you baby girl see you later <laughs> i'm your best friend was <laughs> oh gosh yeah okay so uh we get a little bit that establishes that laurie actually knows hawkins we i can't remember where but we learned that he was one of the people on the scene back in 1978 the first deputy i don't think his age works with that like she looks so much older than him in this film i'm like he looks like a child what (laughs) i think he's probably as old as her i don't know uh, Will Patton is 67, and Jamie Lee Curtis is 62. So he's actually five years older than her. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's her, her fake-ass fucking wig or whatever they're doing to her hair in this so wait, movie. Th- this is a wig, right? Is that is that what this is? It is, yeah. Okay. Which I didn't realize when I first saw it. I thought that they had just done some weird, like, bird's nest kind of thing. But yeah, apparently she's always had that, like, short... Uh, ever since she cut her hair short, she's always oh, got- she's never gone back. Okay, yeah. Well, whenever it's it's long, it's it's a wig. Well, because I mean, because Richard, like that in Halloween two, that was the big thing, right? The original Halloween two, where it's oh, she cut her hair, so they put this horrible wig on her to make it look like you know the first Halloween. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's the same wig from Halloween two? No, <laughs> it's an old lady wig. No, she just spray painted it got gray. <laughs> She's got, like, the Christmas white spray that you can put on trees. She's like, yeah, just a little frosting. Yes, it looks so bad. (laughs) I love that idea. I love the idea of Jamie Lee Curtis doing it herself, too. Like, makeup people be damned? No, I'm just going to tease this wig myself and plop it on. She's got it in her prop room, like the Annabelle room, and it's in a glass case. And it says, like, don't open under any circumstances. But then, like, she did. Don't don't open until the production of a new Halloween is being shot. Every 20 years, the glass opens and the wig comes out. <laughs> what are we talking about? But see, in H2O, they, they saw it and they were like, oh, God, no, you, you can have short hair. It's fine. <laughs> oh God, I think she looks so good with short hair. Like, I actually think this this wig is not too bad. Like, I think, as you said, Richard, it it's convincing enough that unless you're a wig enthusiast, you're probably fine with it. But I love Jamie Lee Curtis with the short hair. Yeah. I don't know. I also love Ripley with the short hair. Maybe I'm just like, give me a give me a butch woman. I love it. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. So blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's get to this Halloween night. Because I do think that one of the reasons that people really liked uh, the back half of this film mm-hmm. is starting at this particular scene. And the way particularly that David Gordon Green shoots this where Michael is just so 
confident and in control. He is just walking in and out of people's houses, casually murdering them, switching up weapons. And the camera work here, I think, is among the best in the film. Yeah, I I, I love the tracking shot uh, through the houses. I don't know if you guys remember when this uh, when this came out. Well, like, I don't remember who it was, but someone was, like, legitimately angry that he didn't kill the baby. Yes, I do remember that. Legitimately upset. 100%. Like, he pauses and looks at it and doesn't murder it. Like, okay, I like a a child death, but I don't need a baby. So listen, um, I know you probably don't peruse the bloody, disgusting comment boards very often, but... Um, yes, that, 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 that complaint, I don't know, um, honestly, go look at Joe's review, maybe they comment on it there, because yes, people were very much like, that, not my Michael Myers, he would, he would kill that baby, man, 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 I'm like, I don't give a fuck, like, (laughs) yeah, it's like, I don't, I don't really need to see that, (laughs) yeah, but even if it's like, oh, you want to imply it, like, he did it, but we don't see it, whatever, like, I'm not gonna be that nitpicky where i'm like oh my god well michael myers would do this and he wouldn't do this and he would it's a baby whatever like he didn't kill it move on yeah (laughs) i mean i think there's so much good in this particular scene that i don't need to see a baby getting murdered i've already seen what like two women and and a man get murdered like it's all fine and there's something to, I mean, this is the 45 minute mark of the film, but there is something about egg because, you know, the, ki- the kids wearing the Halloween three mask bump into him and we get that, mm-hmm. that, that is that chainsaw ish music cue that's in the first film. And then that's when the, sc- the theme kicks in. Yeah. And I don't know about y'all, but when I, when this happened and it actually, every time I've watched this movie, mm-hmm. I get chills. Uh, like, okay. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> thought you were gonna say like your your dick kind of like springs to life a little bit or something i mean yeah sure yeah <laughs> i yeah. get hard oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, that carpenter score gets me so hard no but it's good and yes you're, you're right the, the tracking shot is fantastic and yeah. there's something because we're doing a thing where it's like oh he, he's not related to Lori anymore so he's just killing people he's just out and about yeah there's some this is probably the scariest sequence in the film mm-hmm. uh which is just yeah he's walking around just massacring people in this town which mm-hmm. is awesome yeah i feel like i've never seen this kind of scene before in a slasher either like i'm used to people getting chased by jason and slamming doors and him just barreling through a window or something like that this is just like i'm just gonna try this door i'm just gonna walk through this open space like he's just out for a stroll and the stroll just happens to have a body count Mm -hmm. like that is terrifying because if you're picturing yourself as a resident of this town, nothing will save you unless you had that door locked. And, and that, that's where it ties into the themes of the first film, right? In suburbia. And we'll get it again later when Allison runs to a house and, oh, someone actually lets her in. <laughs> Which is a nice change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So then we've got the Halloween dance, all of that nonsense. So let's talk about Vicky and Julian, who uh, apparently some people hate and some people love, but he is played by Jabrell Nantambu. I love him. I I love this kid. I think he's so sweet. And I enjoy the humor he employs in this film. Yeah, yeah. I really like him. I think he's a a cute kid. He's funny. I would, like, watch, like, a a Home Alone-style slasher. (laughs) Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) Just a Julian spinoff where he's like, I've got a new babysitter. Oh, shit. People are trying to break into this house. And there's also something just genuinely refreshing about how Vicky, like, talks to him as if he's, like, 
of the same level as her is, you yes. know, like, like maturity wise or adult wise or whatever. Like she doesn't talk to him like he's a little kid. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to watch them banter. And, you know, it's coming, I know, right after we've just seen this awesome, you know, Michael Myers street massacre, but it's kind of a welcome reprieve from that. And yeah, I enjoy it. I agree. And I think this is their sort of contemporary version of the way that Jamie Lee Curtis talks to Tommy. And, you know, Lori is a little bit more, okay, go to bed. It's not safe for you. (laughs) But this feels like, oh, we're acknowledging 40 years have passed. And the way that we talk to kids is a little bit different. Like, she recognizes that this kid is smart enough that she can speak truth to him that actually is interesting though i didn't even think about that like how it's kind of like mimicking the original but i i I guess now that i'm thinking about it i'm surprised that it's not allison the one who's the babysitter and vicky's the one at the dance a little bit yeah i can't help but wonder if this is again like a modern version we're not trying to do a desexualized final girl like Mm -hmm. our final girl actively has a boyfriend that she's going to the dance and maybe is gonna fuck later yeah except that cameron sucks (laughs) unless you have that deleted scene (laughs) right yes correct yeah uh okay so we get different scenes of laurie and hawkins driving around because they're waiting for something to happen calls are starting to come in and this is when we then see dave and vicky get dispatched in the house i just i like this sequence i just i i mean i hate saying i wish we get to see them get killed because i know we see the bodies later and i actually Mm -hmm. love the tableau of Dave's body um, with the knife through his neck and, yeah. you know, whatever. But, yeah, there's something I just, like, I wish we could have seen it. I was fine not seeing Vicky's because seeing her get dragged back is enough for me. And then under the sheet, which is, you know, very visually evocative, very reminiscent of the original, mm. uh, I could have seen Michael stab Dave because I, the, we're already doing the homage by having him literally pinned up in the middle of the wall like that but also it it reminds me of what richard said earlier i just wish we could have gotten more miles robbins because yeah he's barely a character i feel like the only reason i like him is because i like miles robbins yeah i I 100 percent agree i uh it's not necessarily that i i want to see the death but more so that i just like wish that we got more of him uh, Mm -hmm. before the death yeah it it feels like the teenagers are in here because we're doing a remake of the original slash sequel. But also we don't want to do very much with the teenagers because we also have adult Lori and to a lesser extent adult Karen. I feel like there's a tension between the adult storylines and the teenager storylines in this. And I'll be interested to see how much that does or doesn't continue because i feel like we've killed off most of the teenagers and we're now going to move almost exclusively into adult territory yeah and i think in some ways like that's an interesting subversion of of what we expect from the slasher movie right but like the teenage characters that they do have are just like i find them so much more interesting than a lot of the adult characters that get introduced and so i think that's the real issue is that if you want to, you know, shift it over into adults, then I feel like we need more interesting supporting adults, which I'm hoping that we get in kills. But weirdly, it's going to be more fan service, right? Like, oh, we're deliberately bringing back Tommy. Oh, we're deliberately bringing back 
whatever character that real housewife Lindsay is Wallace. going to play. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I find that character boring and I don't care about a real housewife, but sure. Lindsay Wallace? Oh, Lindsay Wallace is so funny. <laughs> Little Lindsay Wallace. I just, I'm worried that we're going to have to spend a bunch of time being like, where have you been for the last 40 years? Oh, you know who this character is because you recognize them from the original. And I'm like, wait, so why did you bother introducing all these characters in the first film just so you could kill them off? And now we're going to spend more time introducing new old characters. You know what? You can just go watch the first movie again and then immediately go watch Halloween Kills. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Please, please give me a watch list order that I should be watching these in now. <laughs> I mean, I guess everybody would say, duh, the original and then this one. But yeah. Okay. So... They're dead, and we've got this crime scene now. So Lori arrives, and she has a little bit of a fight with Dr. Sartain, who has now come back for some reason. He's He's been fixed up, and now he's out and about. Sure, whatever. <laughs> well, I mean, because he's looking for Michael at this point. We mm-hmm. just, well, I mean, I guess we do know that. We just don't know why he's looking for Michael. Yeah. Uh, and of course, now that we know that Michael is hunting people this is when karen and laurie desperately start trying to get allison uh she has left with oscar and this is when oscar is killed in the motion sensor sequence i don't know but, hey maybe this is because we just covered it joe but richard i was getting like real it follows you like from this because i was like dude this backyard is enormous mm-hmm. run laps around him <laughs> <laughs> just run in a circle <laughs> yeah i definitely got i got somewhere it follows vibes as well um but yeah, I, I really like this scene, uh, especially when the, the music kicks oh. in afterwards. It's probably like my favorite Carpenter musical moment in the in the movie is right after this. One hundred, Yes, as soon as she walks up and sees Oscar with that fence through his chin. Yeah. And it's, I, oh, it's, I think it's called like The Shape Stalks Allison. Maybe that's the track called <laughs> what it's called. But Very direct. No, because it, <laughs> it, it is barely over a minute long. And I can tell you right now, I did a whole commute to work one day, 30 minutes, listening to this track on repeat. Oh, wow. <laughs> Okay. I like this visually as a character moment. I don't think it tells a like it's not very interesting in terms of Oscar. <laughs> like he's a bit of an idiot if he doesn't understand, hey, this strange man in a mask is clearly stalking me. Like it it reminds me a little too much of the eighties stupid teenagers where they just go, Hey man, what's up? Actually, Oh, you know what though, Joe? I'm going back to your point earlier about why they cut out the Cameron scene because I, I did. I mean, I know we've have we mentioned Me Too yet in the in this episode? We have not. No. Okay, that was a big part of the not the marketing for this movie, but in the publicity for this movie because it's mm-hmm. always something that Jamie Lee Curtis brought up constantly. So I even wonder if Oscar like making a pass at her. Like, I wonder even if that was, like, maybe a reshoot or something, but uh, that would also attest to why Cameron's thing was cut. So, yeah, to, we're going with the Me Too thing. Yeah, maybe. I will say, not to throw more shade at J.B. Lee Curtis, but I, especially now that we're a couple of years removed from it, it smacks a little too much of opportunism. Like, I can definitely see people talking about, yeah, this is Laurie Strode, 40 years of trauma and PTSD. Absolutely. Happy to read a bunch of think pieces about that. As I mentioned, there's a bunch of good ones out there. But Jamie Lee Curtis being like, oh, yeah, this is a film with the Me Too movement. I'm like, no, that is about sexual harassment and assault and people like misusing their privilege and silencing women. That is not in this movie. 
you can say female agency, you can say female, like, like tapping into their rage and like fighting back, but there's no elements of sexual harassment and assault, unless you want to say that Michael Myers is representative of that and the way that it never stops leaving you. Oscar makes a pass at her and she leaves. Like that's, <laughs> I mean, sure. Some people are going to say that's harassment, but for me, I'm like, uh, I think women just deal with that fucking all the time. Yeah. Also, I'm so sorry, Rich. I feel like we were shitting on this movie for you. <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I still love the movie. I, uh... <laughs> we're just like, I'm just drowning out everything that you're saying. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's fine. I've done this to Joe and Joe has done this to me. <laughs> No, but I can, I like understand, like, and I, I can look at all the flaws in this movie and still, uh, I feel like that's part of, of loving horror. I mean, there are so many movies that, you know, get slammed by critics all the time that I, I still love. So yeah, I mean, I don't think anything that you guys are saying is, is wrong. I just, I still love the movie. There we go. That's very fair. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, so at this point, we're now zeroing in mostly on the Strode slash Nelson family. So Karen and Lori have been escorted with police presence along with Toby Huss's character. They've gone back to Lori's padded estate, I guess. And uh, Allison is now on the run because, of course, Oscar is dead. So she knows she's in trouble. Yeah, she runs down the street. Somebody actually lets her in. So she gets sort of rescued there. And this is when Deputy Hawkins shows up along with Dr. Sartain. Do we do we have anything more to say about Sartain? Because we kind of have gone over this already. But is there anything else you want to say about him? Uh, I don't. But Trace, did you want to say something about suburbia? No, I, I mean... <laughs> You know, part of what I love about that original film, though, is that it's kind of a critique on Suburbia, how it's supposed to be this really safe place. And obviously, everyone knows this if you've done any research on Halloween, so I'm not saying anything new or revelatory here. But, you know, you have that scene where Lori is going, like, knocking on houses and someone turns the light on and they don't let her in. They turn Mm -hmm. the light off and say, go away, crazy girl. And so... What I like about this scene, not only that it's an inversion, because yes, that's exactly what it's doing, mm-hmm. but it's also playing on your expectations. So where we have something like, you know, the Lori going over the balcony and like, you know, not being there. Oh, it's just like the original. This is more in line with that subversion earlier we're talking about in the classroom where it's Lori spying on her granddaughter instead of Michael. Like it's playing off of, oh, I, I think I know what's going to happen here, and it doesn't do it. Um, and so this works for me in the sense that it's like also the irony, by the way, right? Like in 2018, neighbors are friendlier than they were in 1978. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that for me was the only part that I wouldn't like about it was this idea. Oh, we haven't actually gotten to be better neighbors with each other, so it almost rang a little false to me. But I mm-hmm. do agree with you. I like it a homage that also subverts our expectations. Yeah, but still. We could have just had him chase her to grandma's house at this point, but we don't get that. We have we to get, get all the Sartain all stuff. All the Sartain stuff, yeah. Which we've already talked about, we'll skip over. And then we get the Bon Me conversation, which <laughs> I am going to defend this conversation. I like this. Okay. I can see how it's in the climax of the, well, almost at the climax of the film. So people are like, you're grinding the suspense to a halt. Yes. I don't care. I, I, I enjoy it. I, Joe, you're going to laugh. Um, there is an extended version of this scene oh, on the Blu-ray. Jesus. No. <laughs> no, people always should. I, fucking David Garden Green and Daniel Bride doing the goddamn Bond Me. That's so stupid. I don't care. I like it. It's fine. <laughs> 
I do not like it. I will agree with the people who say that it grinds. I don't think it grinds the film to a halt because it's actually not say that it like long. I said it. The, it just grinds it to a halt. <laughs> That's what you sound like. <laughs> Shut up. For me, yeah, it it does play with a bit of wonky pacing. Uh, the thing I don't like about it, and folks will hear me say this again when we cover Scream Four in January, is just. I think it feels a little bit out of place. Like it, it mm-hmm. feels like a scene that doesn't need to be in there. I feel like they kept it because they thought it was a good comedy, but not because it actually works in this moment in the film. I actually would have liked this if it was earlier when maybe we were seeing these two like waiting to pick up uh, Karen and Lori. Like, oh man, I wish we could mm. stop for Bami. I'm really hungry, but instead we've got to protect this family or something like that. Or maybe it would never work. Who knows? No, I, 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 I could, I could see that. Like, yeah, earlier when we're not in the middle of Allison being chased by a killer. Yeah, or I'm sorry, in a cop car with a killer. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I also think it sets up the reveal when Toby House's character actually does come out, and then of course we get the right. homage reveal back wait, to the the head with the lamp wait, of it. But Richard, you have to be the tiebreaker. Yay or nay? Oh, to he's bond totally going to say he likes it. <laughs> yeah, I like the bomb. <laughs> Because you said the comedy worked for you, so I knew that this was going to be one of those instances. Yeah, hey, you know what? He could have been like, oh, yeah, this is the one thing I don't like. It's fine. It's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Allison is now running through the woods. We do have uh, Michael arriving at Grandma's place because Allison the- clearly gets lost in among Grandma's, <laughs> like, mannequin factory garden wait, thing. Wait. Allison is running through these woods and gets to the house about, I don't know, 20 minutes after mm-hmm. Michael via walking through the woods. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm partially convinced that Michael has actually lifted a page from uh, Jason Voorhees and that he is like bamfing through the woods. Like he's like, OK, my business here at the car is done. Bamf. All right. I'm at the Strode residence. I'm ready to fight. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is where we do get some good stuff between Lori and Karen, where Lori actually apologizes, but also it's a bit weird because this moment has confirmed that Lori was right to do all this shit. But but she does apologize to her, though. She says, I'm sorry I raised you the way I did. Yeah, I, I just think it's a bit weird. Like, it's a tender moment that I appreciated between the two of them, but also... Why are you apologizing? Because clearly you did the right thing because now you're being hunted by a serial killer. But that's where layers can come in because I think there's more to it because she's saying, oh, I'm sorry that I did this to you. I'm sorry that it created like the this life that you have now like that you had to get out of, you know, that you were taken away from me as a kid. Like she could have taught her daughter all this stuff without becoming an unfit mother and having her daughter taken away from her by child protective services, you know? Right. And but again, like that that's a conversation that should go on, but we just like we don't have time to do that right now because mm-hmm. Michael Myers is here. Indeed, yeah. So Karen is ushered into the basement for what we think is her own protection, and then Lori gets attacked through the door. I like all this. This is, you know, starting yep. to build up the tension between the two of them because this is really the first time we've seen them interact in the entire film. I think this climax is really fun. I, I really do enjoy this climax a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool to see them like actually confront each other after all this time. I feel like it 
it builds up for so long that I do feel like the the payoff in this was is worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I do think again of H two O because we did get a relatively sustained climax between right. the two of them. But in this case, it's very different from H two O's. Right, like that one was more. I'm gonna try to distract him and then maybe fight him a little bit. This one is. I am in control. I have booby-trapped this entire fucking house to the nth degree. But, okay, but see, here's where my difference is going to come in and why people don't... I mean, our editor, Brad Miska, hates the fact that she, like, is overtaken so easily in this climax. What we have in H2O is, like, confident, powerful. Like, yeah, she's, like... I mean, she's not necessarily confident, but she's getting shit done. Whereas this one is the exact opposite, where she is confident, but overly so. And she messes right. up. And I think that people, when they watch this climax, they're like, oh, like, I, H2O's is better. Because, yes, that is a more crowd-pleasing, audience-friendly climax for mm-hmm. this story. This is not. And while I do prefer to watch the climax of H2O, because I just think, again, yeah, it, it really gets you going. You're like, fuck yeah, bitch! Like, insert Lucille Bluth, good <laughs> for her gift. This feels more real to me. Like, this feels more like what would actually happen. And again, I mean, I'm just, you know guessing here but right it feels appropriately and necessarily messy in a way that h2o is not yeah i i, I think i that's part of what really gets me about this climax is that you know it feels like this is someone you know who exists in in a real world i, I like yeah. the fact mm-hmm. that yeah. Lori isn't this kind of superhero Right, and we set her up, you know, the the film sets her up to kind of be the Sarah Connor character. Yes. But like in the end, like she's she's not. Like she's mm-hmm. she's overpowered by this this monster and then has to rely on her family to to reconnect, uh, become part of the community again, which I think is kind of a really interesting, you know, kind of subversion of what we expect, but then also like of the original movie where, you know, it's it's Lori pretty much by herself and i think that's something that you know hopefully and it seems like from the the previews for halloween kills is that she has to become more reliant on you know haddonfield as a as a community rather than just right. herself yeah oh yes good point yeah it, it feels and maybe y'all can say i'm wrong with this but it feels like a less hollywoodized ending than h2o does like you know h2o is like sleeping with the enemy you know i like to report a murder bam husband's dead um Whereas this is just not that. It's it's an unconventional... I mean, granted, it still ends the same. They trap him, they win, whatever. But, like, at least for this little bit of where it's just the one-on-one. Like, and it, actually, Richard, similarly in this, she has to rely on her daughter to take him down. She can't do it by herself. Well, I, I like what you're both saying because it's kind of addressing what Brad Miska's issue was, right? Like, this isn't actually... Lori being unable to defend herself and being ill-prepared or overconfident. Her whole plan is to come off this way and utilizing her daughter having prepared her this way. Like, this is her play acting at not being good at defending herself so that she can lure Michael into that basement. But similarly, you can't just read it as, yeah, she thought she had him. It didn't work out. They went to plan B and she realized, I can't do this by myself. I need to involve other people. No one person will ever be able to take Michael Myers down. Mm. I need to actually use my daughter. I need to use my bonds to the community and my family that I have tried to push away all these years. The only way we will all survive this is if I reach out and use that. 
Yeah. Which is exactly what she does after, you know, we get, like, honestly, this movie's mannequin budget must have been off the chains <laughs> because we have got so many maniac-style mannequins. But yeah, they eventually get Michael into the basement. Uh, the moment where he falls down the stairs and then grabs Judy Greer's leg, you know it's coming, and I actually still find it very effective. It is effective, but hold on, because we did gloss over Judy Greer's gotcha, which I do think is fantastic, but, mm-hmm. but, and y'all may disagree, I think it is immediately deflated by this Jamie Lee Curtis, like, we're doing the, the light thing from the original movie, Happy Halloween, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it looks bad, but the, th- the funny thing is, seeing this in theaters, um, people were cheering and hollering and hooting. Oh, sure. When Judy, when Judy Greer did the gotcha. Yeah. And to the point where when Jamie Lee Curtis has her moment where it's like, happy Halloween, Michael, and she's going to do whatever, push him in there. It doesn't have the same punch, right? Well, you also can't hear it. You could not hear it (laughs) because people were so going gangbusters for Judy Greer. So I'm like, oh, the Judy Greer moment works amazingly. But then it overshadows Lori's. It overshadows Lori's because it's a Lori's is not as effective. But also, if you're again playing to an audience, like yeah, no one's gonna hear what Jamie Lee Curtis. I don't even. When I first saw this in theaters, I don't even know what Jamie Lee Curtis did. (laughs) (laughs) I was so high on my Judy Greer fan club. Fucking Judy Greer gets the killer punchline. Such a good moment for Judy Greer, and I hate that they they kind of take it away from her by having Lori do this thing with this really weird fucking light trick. I really like the visuals of her doing, as you said, Trace, a light trick where she opens up all of these gas faucets around the entire fucking house. Like, normally we'd get an action movie cliche where it's like, oh, there's one propane tank that's open and I flick a match in slow motion and Michael goes up. And instead, he's just standing there with his black, dead eyes, not giving a shit that he's about to get exploded but we get all of these isolated shots of like the gas going up in different mm-hmm. rooms. Uh, I like it. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, so they explode him. Uh, oh, by the way, Allison has joined this club. She's been here for a oh, little yeah. bit. <laughs> we forgot about her. <laughs> She's there. She is. She is present in these scenes. <laughs> I, I will say when she enters and says "grandmother." Uh, which is just she calls her grandmother all throughout the movie and it feels so antiquated (laughs) which i feel like i feel like that's also like a damian mcbride touch Interesting. Uh, but yeah when she when she entered the house and did that in the theater like so many people like busted out laughing because it's just such an odd an odd choice i i think about it like so often it's just like (laughs) i'm just out getting my coffee i'm on the metro and i think grandmother yeah it's just it, that that moment just like really like has stuck with me for some reason because it's just so odd. <laughs> well, really yeah, because no, 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 does a Gen Z listeners do you all say grandmother? <laughs> Let us know. Do you also eat Werther's originals? Just um, I eat the chews one hundred percent. They are so good. <laughs> uh, okay, so Michael is exploded. We've got all three of our. Uh, strode slash nelson women have survived they texas chainsaw massacre it by hitching a ride in the back of a truck yay we're all happy it's a little bit sad thankfully we've got this fire michael is obviously completely dead there's no way he's ever going to come back oh wait is that him breathing over the credits we're done did y'all have any suspicions because the the last shot of this film is uh, a zoom in on the knife that allison is holding 
Did y'all think that maybe the direction of the sequel they were going to do was... She was um, going to go Jamie? Kind of, yeah. Like, follow up on, on the, the cliffhanger from Halloween 4 and actually... I'm sorry, actually follow through with it. And right. make Like, I honestly was like... I mean, I knew they wouldn't get rid of Michael Myers, but I was like, wouldn't that be wild and brave and bold? If yeah. Michael was actually dead and it was allison who snaps and goes on a rampage in the sequel i 100 percent thought that when i first saw ah! it before the before the breathing 100 percent. audiences would revolt they would be yeah. so pissed. oh yeah for sure but like at the same time like that's kind of like what i want to see like it's so like daring and risky like i legitimately like thought like oh is david gordon green like legit gonna kill michael myers and just like go a completely different direction with this mm-hmm. it's called halloween ends it's coming to you in 2022 <laughs> i mean look i'm just sitting here like oh my god what kind of a cliffhanger is halloween kills gonna end on because you know it's gonna end in a cliffhanger you know it's gonna be some really big life or death thing and oops see you next year so oh for sure yeah i think it'll put i think there's a very real risk that we will lose either jamie lee curtis unlikely or judy greer or they will be in mortal danger going into the final film. Yeah. Yeah. But um, that is Halloween, y'all. Final thoughts. And Richard, as the guest of honor, your thoughts on this film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I still I still really like it. I 100% you know, agree with a lot of the, the flaws and the issues that this movie has. But um, I mean, I just, I, I love this franchise. I love like the excitement for seeing a new Halloween movie. And really, like, there's there's not an entry that I, I, I dislike except for uh, Resurrection. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. fair. That's yeah, fair. That it, is very fair. I, I will say, I, I, I marathoned all these, and I found it a bit of a struggle, but Resurrection's easily the worst. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that one just feels like such a cash grab, right? Like, there's no soul in it, and the way they get rid of Laurie is such a slap in the face of fans. And the and the mask is just like... Oh, the mask is real bad. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about the mask at all in this. No, I don't oh, care. yeah. I Actually, I love the mask. Nope. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was about to be like, I don't care. But no, 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 please, please, no. Like, talk about it. <laughs> Yeah, well, I just think that the the like weathered like texture to make it like age almost like skin is just like kind of a a yes. cool choice. Um, and I also just like kind of like the idea of it getting like more and more fucked up like through the next two entries. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like like he has the 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 burned half. So I'm very curious to see what it'll look like uh, by the end of this. And Jaws two. <laughs> oh yeah that's right i didn't even stop to think yeah that mask is going to be a little charred going into the next movie mm-hmm. and his missing fingers right yeah because we got those shotgunned off uh i like this i liked it a lot when i first saw it and then when the high came down i really ended up just focusing in on a lot of the flaws having a couple of years distance and having the opportunity to revisit it for this was helpful because I knew what I was going in with this time. And yeah, I hate all of the doctor, the doctor Satan. I hate all of that. (laughs) I really just do wish that we had a bit more time with these characters, like maybe get rid of one or two of these storylines so that we could just spend more time. Cause I do think Danny McBride has done a, a reasonable job of creating interesting people i'd like to spend more time with and because we don't get that i just feel like the film has a kind of start and stop motion but 
yeah, like you said, Trace, I'm also intrigued to see if I will feel differently with each successive yeah. new entry. Because if this works well as a trilogy, then all of this may be for moot, right? Like, we don't know. Yeah, so Joe, you gave this a 4 to 5 in your original review. Where would you settle on it now? So now it's a 3. Okay. I, I was a 4 when I saw it. I'm a 3.5 now, so I'm slightly higher than you. Because I, I'm more on the Richard side, where I'm like, I am aware of all these flaws, and I... I, I have a lot of gripes with this film mm-hmm. as you have all noticed over the past two hours but i i still like it i get my, my preferred timeline like as of now is one two h2o but one 2018 is probably a second pick for me i know people were like three and I, I like it but i don't ever really revisit it that much and um the cult of thorn stuff is fine but meh <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is it is what it is. So yeah, I like it. I, I do like this movie quite a bit. I just, I am very, very aware of its flaws because it is not flawless. Right. <sighs> well, all right, everyone. Before we announce what we're covering next week, Richard, please, A, well, please, A, A, <laughs> thank you for coming on to this episode to talk about this with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was, this was a blast. <laughs> and uh, please let everyone know, where can they find you on social media? Yeah, I am on Twitter uh, at Richard L. Newby. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. You can find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And also we've got a YouTube channel where you can go watch us record our micro queers videos. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want even more Horror Queers content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. Um, go subscribe now because we are, I mean, in the middle of spooky season. Uh, we'll be having, ep- we have episodes on Slasher Flesh and Blood, uh, Netflix's Midnight Mass, and of course we'll have some on Paranormal Activity and, as Joe already said, Halloween Kills next week. And to help celebrate the release of the new Chucky series, our audio commentary this month will be on Child's Play 2. Mm-hmm. And actually, we should note that by this point, Microqueers will have been on pause because we're actually going to be covering Chucky on a weekly basis. Yay! It's a first for us, y'all, but please give us one of those because we'll be talking about the eps as they come out. Mm-hmm. But Joe? Yes? What are we talking about next week? All right. So as you said, it's October, spooky season. I thought that we should revisit a property or rather a franchise that we've looked at before, but it feels apropos because you talked about how much you were happy to move away from vampires. Uh, Yeah, we're going to go back and revisit the original Marvel vampire movie. So we're going to be looking at Blade. I I can't believe on this fucking podcast, we have done Blade Trinity and we're going to do Blade. So Mm -hmm. we're doing the best one last, apparently, is what we're saying. (laughs) I love this first one. I did not have fond memories of Trinity, but uh, original Blade is a very important to me. Yeah, I, I like it a lot. I just, you know, I love that Del Toro touch. Mm-hmm. But, um, alright, everyone. Well, until next week, we can cross out Halloween. Yes, and cross out Horror Queers. 